Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. I fit up. <laughs> fucked up. Oh, we, no. we just had a really interesting conversation for 25 minutes, and I didn't press record on my end. So we're going to yeah. have another well, we spot, have, spontaneous we have my, conversation. Or, you know, I can volunteer. We do have my side of the conversation, which, of course, is the more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Without the interruptions. Yeah, yeah. No, fully. Uh, we'll release that in the should, special uh, edition. Maybe, maybe we should do a different topic and then do this topic next week so it's more spontaneous. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a way for us to get into this okay. topic and to talk okay. through it. Um, well, we were, t- we were talking about, I before the podcast, I went to Whole Foods, which is about a 15-minute walk. Uh, to get eggs and some other stuff and then i got there and i got all the other stuff and even some other stuff but i forgot the eggs mm-hmm. yeah. and uh and i asked why were you getting eggs and of course like i don't we always do this thing when we lose our data we end up recounting what we said yeah. uh but you know i think just to get started yeah. just to get just to get going um so you were cooking an omelet right no christina's christina's the omelet master Oh, she's the omelet master. See, I yeah. missed that. Let's no, get into that. I love her omelets. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but we both. Uh, without been exaggeration, about food. I can say that they're the best omelets. Now, I hear the secret to an omelet is actually to stir the omelet as it's cooking. Have you heard that? Before? I don't know what she does. I try not to. I, I'll. I'll usually, if if we cook dinner, I often do it because I'm at home during the day. So I like to make things like stews or ratatouille or things that, that sit for a long time. So I can. I'm working, and while I'm working, it's going. So dinner is often what I do because she works outside of the house. But then in the weekend, she'll make breakfast. Hmm. And is she? Um, so she's making breakfast. And what, what's a breakfast for her? Is an omelet-based breakfast as well, or because you know, an omelet is one of those few meals that's universal. It's like you can have an omelet for breakfast, you can have an omelet <laughs> for lunch, or for dinner. I, I think it was Seinfeld who had this joke about the omelet chef at the hotel, and that you feel kind of bad that. <laughs> It's like it could have been so many options, but maybe you became the omelet chef. <laughs> and then you have to interact a bit with the omelet chef because the, there's the hotel food bar, which everything you take yourself except the omelet has to be made. And you have to kind of stand there and either make small talk or mm. go get your other uh, deli meats and uh, toast and, uh, and then come back. But then you feel bad for ignoring the omelet chef. Mm, you're reminding me, I was at a hotel, a swanky hotel uh, last weekend. I was um, doing some work in Chicago and uh, the muse- I was working with the Museum of Contemporary Art there and they put me up for one of my evenings in the this new Ritz-Carlton. And uh, they had, they were, it's one of those places now in hotels, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, where there's like half of the building is condos and then they have the hotel on top kind of thing. So it's a bit awkward. Um their, so their lobby is like on the twenty second floor or something like that. Oh, uh, that's like the. This is gonna sound very uh, privileged, but that's like. <laughs> no, it reminds me of a few hotels. Yeah. Okay. The, okay. The, the, no, there's the Park Hyatt Tell me your in five Tokyo. Top, five top luxury hotels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the Park Hyatt in Tokyo is, is office buildings till the forty fifth floor, and then it's hotel. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, but what, what's what was cool about this renovate because they just renovated. So they they announced the the bellman or whatever or the the guy at the front desk was like, you know praising this recent renovation and he points out like the new restaurant area and i think you know uh, hotels have always had sort of sometimes have had a reputation for having good restaurants right not always but sometimes um but it was really interesting because like the cafe they had like a restaurant and then they had like a cafe area um and it was very open 
But it made it seem more like I don't know how I put this. Like restaurant hotels have always seemed to me very stodgy, and like I wouldn't stay, especially in Europe, where the <laughs> it'll be like off to the side. I don't know. Maybe it's because I stay in worse hotels in Europe or something. Yeah. But um, it was like no, I, I think in in Europe, if you're in a mid price hotel, then often you just skip the restaurant altogether, and go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, and because uh, they can't compete against the amazing food options yeah. of like the local. Yeah. Uh, European uh, and, and the idea of a buffet like the, the the fruit and everything has been pre-cut four hours ago and it's kind of mm-hmm. stale and, yeah yeah because so the only bring it up because it's like I get I get I was like a double take I was like actually that doesn't look that bad and they had like a, like a a coffee shop where you could walk up and it was just like oh they finally figured out the way the rest of the world buys and eats food and it yeah, was it's it's it, funny it's same with airports where all of a sudden they're doing a little <laughs> bit nicer food and it's not a sandwich that's been made last week <laughs> exactly it's just like it's almost like they're paying attention and uh, oh, it's just, <laughs> oh people oh. don't want a frozen sandwich oh. they want a sandwich that's warm and freshly made i didn't <laughs> why did you tell us <laughs> Uh, yeah, it I is, think it's just because they can get I've been away thinking it about it a lot that as big <laughs> cities are gentrifying to the extreme, they're kind of changing into airports where there's only hmm. chain restaurants or chain stores and uh, nobody shops at the stores. They shop online. The stores mm-hmm. are just for browsing. Yeah. And so a lot of it, expensive areas and cities are starting to feel like airports and airports are starting to feel more like cities. <laughs> so the inevitable together. the inevitable airport uh, hey, city and, and you know yeah. that i live i i live right next to an airport well there you <laughs> go yeah <laughs> i really yeah. enjoy that what is truth anymore what's the city what's an airport yeah. <laughs> no well, but anyway, uh, yeah. we, th- so this week's episode is about food and um things like food and art and food and efficiency and food and technology and um that's what we want to talk about yeah, so like food technology is actually um, interesting right now, and I think most is, people is there probably a, think a of trend right now. It, because and anyone I know would rather have fresh food, but is there a trend towards a new kind of? You know, in the fifties, it was maybe it was really great to have everything out of cans, and that was really mm-hmm. being a good citizen. And now mm-hmm. you're a good citizen if you go to the farmer's market. Yeah, well, like but is one there of the... a, a movement back to extremely processed? Hmm. Well, it's interesting. Let's go back in time for a little second, though, because you mentioned canning. But another huge technology breakthrough in food was um, refrigeration, right? And so the history of food has always been about how close you are to the the, the site where the food is produced, right? Mm-hmm. And um, as we moved towards cities, we were further and further away from the fresh food. Yeah, and I think the original our- city planning of Manhattan, okay, we need this many lots of agriculture to keep uh, to get all the food to the people oh really yeah yeah, yeah. like i mean the, of course we talk we talk about urban farming now and farm to table and and all that but like you know they they tried to solve that like on an engineering level far before um, that became hip right and so the solutions were like you said like canning and you would have put things in preserves and of course in the northeast <clears throat> you can't grow food all year round right so it was necessary to preserve food. And, uh... Yeah, you need six months of the year. You need like, oh my God, how am I going to eat, right? <laughs> potential starvation problem yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you're dealing with. And certainly it's not easy to get an orange from Florida up to New York State. Um, I was like just looking at Instagram before we got on the podcast and a friend of mine was trying to go from Pittsburgh to Buffalo to deinstall a show at this gallery called Squeaky Wheel. 
And she was like fighting a blizzard. She's like, I can't even get there. I had to stop overnight in Erie. It's like, you know, so like it can be a winter can be like a real thing. Like it actually prevents <laughs> you yeah. from surviving. And you're, you're uh, just for you, winter just means that your delivery status has a little right red word saying delay. And you're like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And so like, so a few technologies, like one was canning, right? And preserves, like, and, and that's been around for also a long time. extraction then, of nutrients into powdered mm-hmm. form or pill form. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Condensation of milk and Vitamin powder. pills and things like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so then refrigeration allowed, a, you know, refrigerated trucks allowed But here's, here's us the to thing with, with food and technology that I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've, here's a little disclaimer, but I was raised on a macrobiotic diet. So it's a pretty extreme uh very aware of what you eat, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I was really taught to against any kind of food and technology or canning or uh, vitamin pills. All that thing seemed like a dilution of the real thing. Mm-hmm. So th- th- just just to s- tell you where I'm coming from. So then when I see things like Soylent, the, the food startup, or any other type of food startup, or even vitamin pills, I just don't trust it because... Um, I would rather eat an orange than have a vitamin pill, vitamin mm-hmm, C mm-hmm. pill, or I'd rather eat a carrot than a beta carotene pill. Because basically, what my belief is, I'm not sure if it's exactly true, but that food is so complex and biology is so complex that if we extract some chemical component, but we're missing the bacteria and uh, the probiotics and whatever's going on, mm-hmm. it's so complex. We're not going to know about it for the next 300 years. So. In the meantime, I'll just eat the carrot. No, I'm I'm with you, and like most people, you know, make the biggest mistake. But it, it's uh, funny, uh, like Christina's grandma is a person who that generation where there was a lot of canned food, and she eats McDonald's all the time, and she's 85, and she mm-hmm. looks like she's 70, and she's completely happy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so yeah. I often think we we have this. Uh, maybe it's also marketed to us this obsession with being superhuman and healthy, and mm-hmm. and if you would eat uh, processed food, you'd be fine too. So you went to the the new museum for some event where you ate algae or something like yeah, that? Yeah, there was, was a rhizome there? event, and there's this food startup. Uh, I can't remember the name. We'll look at it. We'll put it in the show notes. But um, the thing is, growing food asks a lot of the planet. You need a lot of water and a lot of soil. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's uh, sustainability problems and one of the most optimal ways of growing nutrients is uh, algae and growing them in water and you can you can grow them a lot faster than vegetables or I mean meat even more and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of protein in it so the ideology and the technology was there Mm -hmm. and so they had um, cocktails and a candy bar made out of algae and uh, they had all these uh, stories why this was a good idea and it all made sense but then you taste the thing and it was horrible mm. and yeah, it reminds I, I was, me I was uh, joking I uh, mean this what, sounds what a bit unspontaneous like? but I was joking how how new media projects are always have a lot of intentions and ideology but the final result there's no enjoyment <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. The, there's a certain torture to it um, but the ideology is interesting well I, I had a a, a product recently, or I tasted one that was supposed, you know, designed to counteract that. Which was, um, have you heard of the Impossible Burger? Oh yeah, that's like a, a a vegan burger that tastes like meat. Yeah, like, and they found a way to get this like hemoglobin off of like um, old soya, like flowers or something like that. They found a way to take soy 
and like actually produce the same proteins that is it are in blood to give this patty the that's juicy. like a, a juicy yeah it's kind of ju- yeah anyway I, I never ate it. I never understand why vegetarians would want to try to emulate meat why don't they just make delicious vegetable dishes with with spices um, you're absolutely right I mean so let me just tell you about this burger it, it, though, because it, it, the, the yeah the, there was no blood when I ate it but it did taste kind of like meat but here's what I'll say that I think is like a, maybe a more interesting thing is that they emulated the Shake Shack style of burger in terms of the bun the cheese like fresh lettuce and tomato they did that part better than the meat that was better than the meat <laughs> you know what I'm saying so it was like yeah because in a in a burger from McDonald's you can barely taste the meat the burger but, right? but they could make a delicious bean burger sure they could of course they yeah. could but the fact that is that <clears throat> the surrounding frame was much tastier than the burger itself, which mm. is, I think, the th- it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, for me if, if they a, would make an amazing grilled vegetable sandwich and call it that, it might mm-hmm. be uh, more exciting than a burger because there's a more complexity and more different uh, taste sensations and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it is like a, it's interesting for me because I've also stopped eating meat um, at lunchtime. As like yeah. I, I'm joking as like an uh, like actually I'm not joking but like ethically I thought it was an it's an interesting thing to do but that's really an excuse I've been saying that it's ethical because it reduces my carbon footprint um, but everyone knows that I'm unethical about because <laughs> I don't you know. travel a lot yeah it, that wasn't the reason for it but I like that because it allows me to like say I'm doing something good for the planet and to hold sort of elite high ground or moral high ground over others and it's interesting as soon as you start calling yourself a vegetarian. <laughs> at lunch everyone around you is like oh I, i'm so ashamed i'm so ashamed. <laughs> so, i know so i should be that, uh... that wasn't that wasn't a benefit i expected but i'm really enjoying it i just want to <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it's so funny because someone a friend at work they were a vegetarian and they they said um you know you should just do it jeremy like um for breakfast and lunch and and then you can eat meat at night and then what you're not doing you're not doing without it's a third of the impact and, and I'm there. They were a vegetarian full time. And in the time that I've been a vegetarian at lunch, they suddenly started eating meat at lunch, like because they said that they were into it. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember the reason, but I'm so ashamed of them. I'm like, <laughs> you've fallen in standing. You're no longer part of the. Do you? Do you? Feel How could like, you do that? Uh, do you feel like you enjoy the food more or less, or do you crave meat for lunch? Well, there's always a placebo effect whenever you change your diet. You know that, right? Like, there's like, you change something and then you're like, I feel great. I feel like so, I have so much energy or, oh my God, I'm so tired, right? You suddenly become more in tune with your body. And that was actually the real reason I did it because I thought it would be fun to change my social perception and my physical perception around something I you take for granted. You want to become super Bailey. Well, I just want to take something I take for granted, which is eating lunch, and then like, okay, let's turn it into a little research project. And we talk a lot about perception on the podcast and like, you know, listening to the world around you. And it's a way of perceiving the world through someone else's lens. And and it's been really fun so far, actually. Like, you know, well, if, you know, of course, there are limited options. I've had a lot of quinoa salad, <laughs> but I've also like learned to appreciate beans and like how exciting that is when they put beans in something because they're so tasty and and uh, full of protein mushrooms can be interesting all the different kinds of uh, mushrooms yeah i'm exploring a lot of soups as we spoke about i think vegetarian (laughs) food can be really exciting and delicious but it's harder than uh, when you cook with meat like you can have a pretty bad steak and it's not grilled to perfection Mm -hmm. but it's still super tasty you just throw some salt on it it's delicious (laughs) there's a restaurant here in new york uh, uh, kokage kajitsu it's it's double restaurant Mm -hmm. 
and they make this uh, Buddhist monk food. It's um, it's the celebratory food from Japan from Buddhist monks from uh, centuries ago, and it's kind of the basis of macrobiotics. But basically, it's mm. it's very fancy vegan food, so mm. very elaborate visual spectacle, but all no, vegan. So no Kobe uh, beef, though. Like they're no, not massaging no, no. cows. <laughs> no, <laughs> they but just they're, massage they're, them and then they're they massaging root vegetables. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot okay. of foams and a lot of. Uh, molds and a lot of uh, different mm. kinds of mushrooms and it, it, it going very far with vegan ingredients and not trying to emulate Wait, meat for sure. Can I just say like I'm really excited about the idea of eating mold. I'm I'm sincerely yeah, excited. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if you ever come to New York again, which I don't think will happen, but if we should really go to this restaurant, it's uh, yes, exciting. it will happen. I really yeah. want to go. I was saying earlier when we, in, our, in our first version of this podcast though that I'm really into um, the taste of dirt. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or earthiness. But well, like, then uh, this algae bar is for you. Like, I didn't like it, but maybe you will love it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean to like and, whatever. And it's I funny. Tasted. I really like seaweed, and I like Japanese dishes with seaweed. And, and mm-hmm. I'm going to Japan uh, in February, and my hairdresser is Japanese, and we're talking about this region. He's like, "Oh, it's in the north of Japan. Oh, they have special scallops and fe- special seaweed, and the scallops eat the seaweed." So the scallop absorbed the energy of the seaweed, so you have to eat them together, and there's, a, there's this very special sensation you can only have there when it's fresh. And mm. the scallops are sweet, and da 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 Here's so what I don't ex- understand. Here's what I don't understand. Like, you were raised on this macrobiotic diet. I was raised to on a, on a wealthy diet. I'm just going to say, I'm going to call it my privilege, which was like, my mom was super into the food, science of food, but they were also like... For a brief period when I was growing up, very wealthy, and then we were not so wealthy after that. Well, they were when I business. think of a wealthy diet, I think of 17th century Dutch paintings with like some pheasant and oysters and special cheese and uh, okay, yeah, like that's ingredients like pretty from much around the world. You you got it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but actually, it was like when I, I actually was know thought- someone in the Netherlands. He's like a, a wine dealer, and he, he eats too much, <laughs> and he has gout. And it's like a medieval. <laughs> Uh, when you eat too much foie gras like breakfast lunch and dinner okay well everyone eats foie gras there though it's not like a luxury thing anyway like um that we i had a lot of caviar i had a lot of oysters i had all kinds of anything weird the things that like you know and you haven't tried before you know like you know like Right, I don't want to say normal people but most people as children they're like ew i don't like broccoli but we would have like like some kind of weird broccoli some, or like yeah some it'd be Japanese like, broccoli or something yeah like or you know like I was excited to eat liver as a child <laughs> like that was lit- I would or oysters were in caviar like that was just I was so excited about it I loved it we sounded like I mean it sounds ridiculous in, in retrospect but my parents wouldn't let us not eat something and they're and and but they brought so many weird things into the home that we were excited. It was like a palate. Like, what are we going to try today? It's so I'm, weird. I'm when imagining you see a kid. this household where there's like five kids and they're all in in '80s silver spacesuits on on Atari computers coding experimental things. And there's like synth music in the back. And both your mom and dad have a really big hairdo because it's the '80s. The yeah. hair is like uh, with a lot of hairspray and uh, blow drying. It's huge. And everything is glittering, and there's like a sushi rolling machine going, and food experiments, and they're like doing chemistry experiments in the kitchen. And that's that's how I imagine the Bailey household, sort of like oh, the definitely. Jetsons, but with the sushi. 
I mean, my mom was definitely um, she cooked a lot for 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 us, and and there was always all, food was always a part of our lives, and and we talked about the nutrition of food all the time. Like, she would never peel a carrot or a potato because you would she would say, "Well, you're losing ninety percent of yeah, the, yeah, yeah." Well, I agree that right? I, I I always grew up with this belief that a, a meal should have many different colors. It's mm-hmm. one of the I don't know if it's exactly macrobiotic scripture, but. If you have spinach, you should also have tomato, and like you should have a lot of contrasting colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, if, I, if the meal is all the same color, then you're probably not getting a diversity of nutrients. It's funny. My mom did a, did a few simple things that really like sparked for me this idea that food is really like um, the the purest art form, and I haven't really followed through that. I on hate that it life, when people like, try to. Uh, rank different art forms and say like why is music more important than theater why is sure okay it's, un- it's an art than, form than drawing. I just say, yeah my mom wouldn't make just white rice she would put like uh tarragon in the rice or not tarragon like um what's that yellow spice? saffron ah. saffron right yeah she put saffron it so it was bright yellow or you know so the plate was always really vibrant and i and she'd be so proud you know, even though like we'd sit down in front of the TV or whatever we would do, um, she was so proud and excited to share. It's so funny when created. you're a teenager and your parents are doing their best, and you're like, oh, "Saffron rice again, God!" <laughs> yeah, we we're pretty much uh, like that. But um, yeah. it did inspire me, and like I, I don't know, I cook dinner every night for Kristen and I, and it's for me, it's really like it's fun to plate, it's fun to cook. I love the sense. The sensorial experience, the smells, the sounds of cooking. I love the performance of producing a plate. The eating is actually, I don't know, like a very small part. It's like 5% of the experience. Do you, do you enjoy uh, food more when Kristen cooks? No, no, I don't. I, I, I enjoy cooking and I enjoy eating what I cook and I enjoy sharing it with others. And uh, I think, yeah, when she cooks, it, it it's like, oh, that's a nice thing for you to have done. But it, it, It's funny to me, I think when you've cooked yourself, you're much less critical when you eat than in a restaurant where you're like, ah, this is stale or this is not good. <laughs> and I, yeah. yeah. If I'm you made critical. it yourself, if you make an apple pie yourself, for some reason it tastes much better, even if it's a fresh apple pie from a bakery. <clears throat> but one of the reasons I like to eat out, I don't know if you're the same way, is as research for what I'm going to bring back into my home or try at no, home. No, for me it's completely separate because the, mm-hmm. the food I eat out, like a Vietnamese uh, fur soup. Ooh. things like that it's five dollars and it's around the corner and you have it in three minutes and it's gonna be, and i know that if i would want to make it myself it would take two days and it would cost a saying. lot more so yeah there's and there's the restaurant food and there's the home food and they're kind of separate but what's your um signature dish at home then like is it's it- always either stew or soup or something i can make in one uh, uh, pan or a pot mm-hmm. and then let it simmer I just choose a lot of nice ingredients and put them together for a long time it, mm-hmm. um Interesting. I'm, I'm much a fa- I'm a faster cook. I can imagine if I was to work in a restaurant, I'd work in a bistro. Okay. I'd want that like fast fry, that like you know the sound of clanging dishes. The That's hurry, sort of, hurry, get the food out. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, and I especially like the stew the next day, or chili or soup or ratatouille. Mm. The next day, that gets even better. Yeah, you're very you're like a slow cook kind of person, uh, slow food person. I, I, it, yeah, I think it's also because our place is small, and I don't want to. Like uh, saute salmon, and the whole place smells for a long time. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you have so I, many great restaurants at your disposal. Yeah, it's uh, ridiculous. It, it, yeah, it occurs and, and, to me we have really cheap ones too. Yeah, 
Um, but the, like the opposite of slow food is 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 like food that's already ready. Like uh, we haven't talked at all like about ceviche Soylent. and things like that. Well, ceviche, yeah, ceviche. Soylent's like the ceviche of. I wanted to talk. No, a it has bit about nothing that. to do with ceviche. Soylent to me <laughs> is really, it's the saddest part of technology. Is it, 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 it's something I wanted to talk about. It, what was interesting is ceviche you, actually you, for you, a second. Yeah, <laughs> okay. ceviche is a really high tech food. It's just like acid poured on top of fish, right? Well, but it's um, extreme. It's pure and fresh ingredients. There's nothing processed about it. No, I know that's what I mean. But it's just like simply the the science of it is so simple. The the, the acid kills any uh, opportunity for bacteria, and therefore, and it cooks the fish itself like without any heat. It's amazing. It's like a, yeah. Anyway, yeah, and just it's a so moment delicious. for ceviche. <laughs> yeah, but it's also and, like, the type I, of food. It's the type of food where you can't really hide anything. Like if you make a curry and the the beef or fish you're using is not that great. Mm. You you hide it, but ceviche and sashimi and uh, what's that Italian thing? The thinly sliced uh, carpaccio, things mm-hmm. like that. If you have bad ingredients, it's not going to work. Yeah, I had the best ceviche in Costa Rica, just like by the side of the road. You know, it was like <laughs> a little, like a little booth, like a little uh, stand, and it was just yeah. like a family making it. Anyway, um, but yeah, yeah so food and technology is funny. So I'm. It, all this was leading up to that I'm very suspicious of food and technology and people are suspicious of GMOs and people are suspicious of mm. pestic- pesticides and, and there's this myth that food coming directly from the soil and local, and I don't know if it's a myth. I don't know because we wouldn't have the modern world without pesticides. Okay, so in most cities now, farm to table is like the, is the stand. There's no restaurant below farm to table except McDonald's. And even they're like, actually... We got these potatoes from a local farm, right? Um, so yeah, is farm that marketing now, or is it actually, do you think well, it that, tastes that, better? Uh, I don't know, but that's like the new social baseline. I don't want it unless the farm brought it to my table. Like I don't want any middle distribution. I don't want any middle processing. Yeah. I want the processing and to happen in Soylent, the kitchen. And then which is the exact opposite. <laughs> it's, that's right. It is. It's totally opposite. And uh, I there's like one guy at work who, who drinks Soylent or who has uh, been drinking Soylent. And he explained to me that it was a way of optimizing his day. You yeah. know, these people that like, he's yeah, like, I don't want to And I was I thinking stop. anyone that, who is about optimize. For me, the, the best example of optimize is Mark Zuckerberg, who always wears a gray T-shirt. It's very practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, why waste time choosing your clothes? Yeah, right? and gray is nice because uh, a black T-shirt, you can see dandruff or dust on it. And a white T-shirt, you can see ketchup stains. But gray is in the middle. It's the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So it's very thought out. When you and Warren Buffett, for example, still lives in the same house that he bought in the seventies. He's very frugal, mm-hmm. and that's admirable on one side. On the other side, if you have these tremendous resources, why wouldn't you stimulate fashion or architecture? Why wouldn't you uh, ask the best architect in the world to let their imagination run wild and create something that uh, pushes the boundaries of what we thought was possible? Mm-hmm. And so the same for food. Why wouldn't you stimulate people enjoying gardening and tending to a garden, <laughs> right, and making right. nice? Why, wouldn't that be? Do you really? So Zuckerberg for me is the perfect example. He made this video where he automates his home, mm-hmm. and there's a toaster that toasts his piece of toast uh, when he wakes up. But the piece of toast must have been in there all night. Somebody put it in there before. Mm. Yeah, and. And also, the, the idea of, of white toast is, is absolutely no flavor. It's actually not good for you. It causes colon yeah. cancer, whatever. It's, but the idea that he optimizes his life 
to serve his community, but he's actually destroying uh, communities. And mm-hmm. he's, he's using all his energy to create more clickbait and then skip fashion or food or architecture just to create more clickbait. So th- maybe that's the question for your programmer or whoever uh, is into coding and they're like, I want to optimize my life. Optimize for what? To make more clickbait? Well, I want to tell you a story. It was funny because he like, so he, he started drinking soil. He told me it was like, I, it's, it's so I don't have to make have a you decision tried it? about What's the taste like? Mm, yeah, I did try it. I mean, I also ate a lot of Soylent bars at one conference that was sponsored by Soylent. Uh, it just tastes like, um, um, like a cho- like a kind of like a milkshake or chocolate bar kind of thing. Is it? Is you know, it, it depends if it on wasn't the flavor. For the, there are different flavors. If it wasn't for the nutrition and uh, you were at Shake Shack and they would serve a Soylent shake, would you enjoy that shake or just be like, Ugh, "This is a terrible milkshake." <clears throat> Um, I think it's just like, it's okay. There's nothing interesting about it. But It's like a I, like, McDonald's milkshake. Where it's yeah, like, it tastes okay. like it looks. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, the funny thing is he, you know, he started to, to drink these things as a way of optimizing his life, but also but so he didn't he, have to make uh, the decisions. You don't want to out this person for whatever person, but yeah, yeah. Do, do you feel like this person was needed to optimize his life more because he was running behind schedule? No, no, no. It had nothing to do with that. It was about, for him, it's like... And I've talked to Kristen about this as well. Hopefully she doesn't mind that I'm, I'm saying this, but like the, they don't enjoy food and therefore like yeah, the decision about... Yeah, there's tons of people who, who like the, the, the creative energy, like picking the dish or whatever is exhausting to them. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and so because they don't enjoy that, then it's like a, it's a cognitive burden and therefore it's a psychological burden. He's like, I'd rather just not have to think about that. And it's funny because it was actually not about saving time. What he would do is he'd actually... He'd actually get on his bike and bike home, sit alone, and make and drink Soylent in his living room with his cat, he said. <laughs> and then bike back to work. He'd take all the time necessary to go home and come back. Why wouldn't he, he have would, it in the fridge at work? Because he because he actually it wasn't about that. It was like it was he, he wanted to, it wasn't about um having food at his desk, which is also about like a lot of people have great food and they eat it at their desk, and I don't think that's great either. But it was for him, it was just like it wasn't about f- like eating wasn't about food. It was about time for himself, and he could opt. He could like maximize well, the amount of time. Yeah, he had. I could imagine that if you say I and to get through my day and be good, I need a half hour of meditation. Hmm. Yeah, and that's what so that's what he was doing, which I found found very interesting. It wasn't just to keep well, like, going. Maybe, maybe someone like, would 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 rather go to the gym and be on the treadmill for half an hour and eat in five minutes instead of being in a restaurant for forty five minutes. Yeah, so you can take all, I mean, there's all kinds of apps that optimize for this now. I don't know if you have Ritual yet in New York, but um, Ritual is like an app that allows you to order your food so that, and then it tells you when to start walking to the restaurant, like it calculates. So that as soon as you get there, you get into the Ritual line, which is shorter, and you pick up your food, right? So it's like, you're not going to get delivery, but you're going to get as, you know, this is as close to arriving at the restaurant and what you wanted is ready for you already ready to go yeah, so you don't waste any of that waiting fu- around time. it's funny when people do food innovations and it, to me it just sounds like people have figured out how to make food enjoyable and tasty and wonderful and social mm-hmm. many centuries ago so we we don't mm-hmm. have to reinvent the wheel all the time do you know this salad place called chopped oh yeah i've heard of it i've never eaten it's, there. Though. i went in there once with a a bunch of friends and it's terrifying is they chop a salad in front of you and they it there's a line of maybe 40 people who are all in a rush so that's already that energy there and then it's like chipotle or whatever restaurant where you just have mm. a line and you pick ingredients but they 
chop really loudly and there's like f- maybe five people in- next to each other with these big knives going dang 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 it's like being in a car factory or something they're preparing your salad and yeah but it's interesting because all of these that optimization in that restaurant experience the sort of like fast casual yeah but but then if, if you know a french bistro and the tradition that there's a chalkboard and there's three dishes you can choose from and the dishes mm-hmm. are different different every day and you sit down and someone brings your meal and it's not that expensive I mean, uh, it's fast like the b- idea of a bistro is that it was fast yeah right? but it's also delicious and it's also you leave the choices up to someone else it's so it's not exhausting mm-hmm. in that sense you don't have to choose mm-hmm. too much um so it, it it's just funny to me that a lot of cultures have figured out they've perfected food many centuries ago and then the new world of technology and marketing and corporations is like, oh, how can we repackage something that already works really well? Mm-hmm. I think the bistro works fantastically well. And I'm, I love a bistro. I mean, um, my father, he started going to a bistro every lunch when, you know, about 40 years ago when he was working as an, an agency. And he went every day almost to the same bistro or another bistro. And you'd never miss an opportunity to go out with a client or the colleague. Yeah, and it's efficient and, because and you, spend you, can, that time. you can spend, like when you stand in line and then you, you're you on a food court and you have to find an empty seat and then you have to clean <laughs> up true. after yourself. If you're using uh, lunch to either joke around or enjoy people, shoot the shit or get business done or whatever, paying $3 extra for someone cleaning up your table and getting your order is actually a very good use of your money. And you're kind of getting to a good point, which is a lot of people feel like, you know, when they don't have time, they compress this lunchtime meal. And you mentioned like in Spain, you know, siesta is like three hours. But like, actually, this is like very productive or important time um, to but sit also down with the whole with other... idea of productive is so preposterous because productive for what? For to be... Well, exactly. Yeah. Like it's an it's another kind of important but not, time that but we even, take for granted. Even if during lunch, all you did was um, make jokes with your your yeah but that would be awesome that's yeah. important yeah that would build trust on your team exactly like, yeah. i just want like for our business listeners who are like i don't have time for lunch or for the, our, our super productive designer audiences like well i have to eat at my desk because i have a client deadline yeah. i just but, i, I, I want to promote this idea that it's the most important meeting of the day but like the, the I, only, i'll just say that i think that if i would have to play devil's advocate mm-hmm. if the u.s has a an emphasis on eating fast and cheap Mm-hmm. And maybe France and Japan and Italy, there's an emphasis on enjoyment and quality. I'm I'm mm-hmm. exaggerating now to make the the point, but um, they anyone from the startup world would argue. Well, there's no French Google, there's no Italian Google, there's only an American Google because we don't waste time on lunch. But have you been to the cafeteria at Google? That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Okay, I have been, <laughs> been to a couple yeah, yeah, of these yeah. cafeterias at Google, and they're insane. It's like you're walking into like the like. It's like a hotel, some, like a fancy it's like hotel. A scene in, yeah, it's like a scene. I just saw the new Star Wars, and they like had this like they have one of those like walking into a bar scene. But it's like one of those scenes where it's like flavors from every corner of the galaxy, yeah. and it's no, like a guy carving like, it, it, and, fresh and turkey. And Google has this funny. Uh, did they start this method where they they sort of perpetuate the call? lifestyle where everything's within an arm's reach and they can do your laundry and get, yeah yeah it basically you do everything mom did for you but college is in a way you know it, it's not it, the google thing is not like a food court it's actually like this like food market uh when you go the way that it's laid out 
and it is like it's very sensorial it's like a it's it's it's, it's their little food courts are very exciting they've designed them in a certain well, maybe, way maybe maybe to preface feel- this a little bit the, the whole mm-hmm. idea of of google is to keep employees around for the biggest part of the day so they're not like oh uh, and so by supplying food for free people don't go out to lunch and they talk to each other and they're, mm-hmm. they're always in the google mindset and in the google environment Mm-hmm. Or in the company, so other companies are emulating that now. Like the cost of making food for employees is um, well, it has a lot to do with the region that they're in, right? So if you're in like um, I don't know Palo Alto or Menlo Park or any of these like California, these are all California suburbs. And like I visited Apple uh, headquarters in Cupertino, and the 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 only thing near the Apple headquarters was fucking Panera bread, and yeah, so it's yeah, like yeah. <laughs> there's like there's an Applebee's and a Panera uh, bread place. It's not like they're in like vibrant downtown neighborhoods. So, and I mean they have to compete against San Francisco startups. So how do they do that? Because San Francisco itself, like the you know the inner city of San Francisco, is, is a food is wonderful. Burritos. There's like, yeah, there's, there's great stuff to eat. Um, so they did they had to create this kind of like idea that you're not compromising. Um, certainly, no one's excited to go to Panera Bread. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I was the first it, time. It, I think we talked about this in the efficiency episode. But when when uh, capitalism and efficiency are applied to food, a lot is lost. Well, the most exciting thing I think about food in cities, and we did we, we in our in our in our lost version of this podcast, we talked about how. Um, you know, supporting your local restaurant is like supporting your local gallery or shop. It's like part of the fabric of a city. And a, a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're supporting a local business owner who's like trying it a way that is not scalable, actually, that can only exist as like a place that does a very special thing very well, one thing really well. And so in a ways, in a lot yeah, of ways, it's like an independent it, artist. It's interesting because it's one of the few areas where people resist the idea of growth. Because mm-hmm. even even in fine art, and I think even in ballet, everybody's like, I want to be a star. It has to be global. I want it to be as big as possible. Every museum in the world. But when you do food, there's I think there's really a tendency to realize that small is better. And I think mm-hmm. that's different than... It, even music, Like if you're a really good violinist, I think you would be excited to be in the New York Philharmonic and not in the Baltimore Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. to be a very special diner in Baltimore or a very special coffee shop in a small town, that's fine. There's no, it doesn't have to franchise. And it, it, I think it's common knowledge that as soon as you start multiplying that business, it, you lose something. That's right. I mean, I was watching um, uh, an interesting uh, uh, episode of this show called... Um, uh, what is it with Anthony? It's not Anthony Bourdain's like uh, No Reservations. This is the other one, like Mind of a Chef. Mind of a Chef, yeah. that's what it's called. And they had a chef on that was this French chef uh, who moved to LA at, at a young age. And he started this, um, This he did start a fast food chain though in, in LA, uh, but he also did a bunch of non-fast food things. But uh, he talked about how difficult it was to produce like this one you know, you got really into fried chicken, this one fried chicken sandwich kind of like very, very well at scale for a stadium. Like, cause there's this, mm. there is there are people, all these chefs from now are trying to take what works well on a small scale and just like make it a, a like a little Fast bit casual. Bigger. Yeah. Like and I guess Chipotle Shake Shack is Shake like, Shack. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so all these other like celebrity chefs are trying to get in on it. I know here in Toronto, we have like a chef named Suser Lee, and he has like a restaurant at the airport now. And I have to say, like, yes, it's better than like a like a, a fast food chain. 
And it's funny, like you're, you're, you mentioned that, you know, the world's becoming like airports. Definitely like this airport had a bunch of, has a bunch of restaurants that we have like in our, our King West neighborhood here in Toronto, which is like an upscale yeah, Things are blurring now. I don't know if I said mm-hmm. this in our field recording or in the, this recording, but I was saying that cities are becoming so expensive, only chain stores and chain restaurants can survive. And mm-hmm. airports are becoming a bit more aware that people want good food, and so cities well, have you not have you not noticed at airports though that there's all these independent restaurants now? Like yeah, we have, like yeah, yeah. there's a Kaplansky's Deli at the Toronto Airport. Yeah, there's a there's, a there's a taco food truck area in JFK now. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, but the problem when I sat down to eat at that restaurant was that because the traffic was pretty high or so high, like. The menu was like all like uh, like folded, and like you know the paper was kind of frayed, and the the service staff was like kind of like you know not very friendly. Like they're just like churning you know people through on a twenty four hour cycle. In a, people are in a rush, and yeah. they were yeah they were missing the one thing that makes sitting down at a restaurant like that exciting, which is that it's like it feels like a social performance or social experience, like that. Um, I don't know if airports can can do that because people have this like adrenaline rush or of stress uh, built in. Like I got to get on my plane in two minutes, um, but uh, I think there, there's something not quite there that's, yeah, but that's I, achieved I th- in most restaurants. I think any style of food, even if it's if you look at the tradition of bento boxes in Japan, you can make food mm-hmm. that you can buy in one minute and and eat on your lap, and it can still be good food. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they, they have to embrace then that constraint. Yeah. Should we should we embrace the constraint that we are at the halfway mark and we have to read an advertisement? Let's do it. Okay. So this is a take two for this. <laughs> Our new advertising format, by the way, if you're sending in an ad, is uh, we're asking for it to be under 100 words. Or is it 90 words? No, under 100. Um, and for there to be a clear call to action so that we can send people to your website or event. Um, so anyway, today's ad is from artist Mitchell F. Chan. Um, and should we get into it? Toronto artist Mitchell F. Chan has created meticulous digital reproductions of Yves Klein's most ethereal artworks, the zones of immaterial pictorial sensibility. Each digital zone is a masterfully masterfully rendered artwork imbued with the sensibility of the color blue. Then, using revolutionary Web 3.0 technology, the artwork is completely 100% immaterialized over a serverless, decentralized network. The best part? Digital zones are transacted and redeemed over a blockchain network like Bitcoin. With blockchain technology, you can be sure of the security and provenance of your immaterial value. Hurry! This extremely limited edition artwork is almost sold out. For more information, visit www.mitchellf. Chan.com. That's www.mitchellfchan.com. Mitchellfchan.com. Yeah, find it in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Uh, thanks, Mitchell, for sending that in. Um, so, so let's talk about food and art. Yeah. So, I, I, um, I, so my theory is that every moment in art history had a rethinking of food, but that it, food is very hard to document because you can't mm. experience it 100 years later. So I'm sure in the Renaissance, they were like, well, now that we've figured out linear perspective and representation of humans, we should also rethink how we eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, uh, and this idea of rethinking how we eat, it's just, you just, like, just to bring it also technology, and I'm yeah. reminded, I forgot, that um, Steve Jobs 
was famously on this apple only diet. Fruit, yeah, like a fruitarian. <laughs> Fru- fruitarian. I met a fruitarian only... once. I, I met Did one. You? Yeah, yeah. He was very skinny. Whoa. He would he would have like three coconuts and two mangoes for breakfast, and then like he would just eat all day. You have to eat a lot. To, it's so much I call fiber. it the uh, pina colada diet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was living in Brazil, so yeah, but. Mm. Uh, I think, but this idea of optimizing. Well, the, the, your, it's it's your funny. Life, all the diet. I saw this nutritionist. He said basically every diet works because you're just restricting something. Whether it's mm-hmm. it's paleo or macrobiotic or f- fruit only or meat only or chicken McNuggets only, whatever. It, as long as you, they're just rules. Yeah. It, so I remember going to a paleo restaurant in Berlin about like I don't know in two thousand like almost ten years ago. And this was a new idea, and like I couldn't stop laughing through the whole experience. <laughs> I kept, I kept joking with the server because they would tell me some paleo story about, and it was just like the science was so not there no, yet. No, it, like it's a, funny with this romanticization of the past, and uh, we can clearly there's evidence of uh, urban planning, so we can see what cities or towns or villages were like. And mm-hmm. there's evidence of, of violence we can see in, in skeletals, skeletons. We can see if they were died of natural causes or if there were bone fractu- fractures. But it's really hard to go back and see what their food was like and how that impacted their life. Well, I mean, and we've talked about it before. I mean, like 100% of your time would have once been spent hunting and gathering and then agriculture comes along and you have a little extra time for... Yeah, you know, and so now I think there's and- a trend to... Th- be very suspicious of agriculture that that already ruined us and that we were more Mm. in our element running around chasing rats and biting them in the tail (laughs) that's just a funny image yeah sounds like apocalyptic that's like our next probably it's great training for when yeah when we're in world war three and we're running after cockroaches and rats yeah have you ever seen um that movie it was um by the Korean director, where they're all on a train in oh like, yeah yeah Snowpiercer, Snowpiercer, and yeah. like they're all eating like crushed up bugs, right? Yeah yeah yeah. Because uh, bugs are like uh, I guess always promoted as this like food of the future, future food. Like I, I feel like I watched yeah that's something some program like. <laughs> Well, I feel like I watch like a program every every f- six months where it's like, and now to talk about the food of the future, and it's like grasshoppers are being ground into bars, or you like you said earlier. My mom is always or, into these new things, so she had these dried bugs that we could we tried, and then mm-hmm. my sister's allergic to shrimp. Yeah, and so she tried one, and her throat swelled up. <laughs> okay, this is the food of the future. I think the food of the future is just a more diverse diet that um, is probably like, cringe got a when little people less. Try to predict the future. Well, I mean, it's going to be a little less meat. We know that for a fact because the cost of that protein is going to is going to continue to increase, right? And so you can probably predict that people will have less meat. Like they're eating more meat now than they ever have in the history of time. Well, there, right? there's a lot of people entering the uh, coming out of poverty, and the first thing you want to do then is celebrate and have meat. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so that, you know, like imagine that's why we're, I'm you saying only ate we're at rice peak meat. and a little bit of carrot your whole life and all of a sudden you you can buy a chicken. Yeah, but the average like meat eating person is eating like tw- is, is consuming twice as much carbon, but you could translate carbon for resources and then we just will if the population continue, continues to increase, we won't be able to do that. Yeah, it's like a, but it's funny now, that you, the, you grew up in the Canadian wealth and you and you had your period of trying every meat yeah. imaginable. And now there's some poor kid in India who can finally afford meat, yeah. and then Jeremy comes along. Hey, 
I don't think you should do that. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Like a deer walks up to my door and sacrifices itself every morning. <laughs> and I just, I just bite it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just part of how we do it yeah. in Canada. But for the rest of the world, I imagine you're going to have to suffer with that. I think I sent you a list of uh, competitive eating yesterday. Oh, yeah. What's that all about? Um, we were just Googling. We were laughing. So the, the, the worst competitive eating stuff. So that's like uh, the opposite of all ethical or moral Yeah, right? So I, I thought, what, what's, the, what's the most un-Jeremy thing to do? It's just to shove hot dogs down your throat without <laughs> even tasting them. In fact, you know, figure out a way that you can like liquefy them. Because don't they always drink water? While Isn't that the technique for eating hot dogs? You drink a glass of water and you shove the, the bun in so the bun melts and the sausage just goes straight down your throat. Yeah, yeah. But then it, we started <laughs> looking it up and there's there's cockroach eating competitions. There's a mayonnaise eating competition. I think people just... Oh, no, eat. that's my nightmare. That's the one people, food I will People eat. eat like eight jars of mayonnaise in four minutes or something like just gulp it up and uh, um, we'll put it in the hmm. show notes. It's very funny. Um, have you ever thought about competitively eating? Oh, no, that's not... I, I wouldn't be any good. And what about competitively cooking? Do you watch any competitive cooking shows? Um, <laughs> no, I don't watch a lot of TV, but... Um, uh, and yet you document all of your, your food, and, and you've you've tweeted yeah. every meal you've ever eaten. Since 2008. Well, it, Twitter came up, and I was kind of like, what can I do with Twitter? Do you remember when Twitter started, and did you have an idea what to do with it? I didn't, but you know what I've noticed recently is like Twitter is like the most active part of my social uh, media landscape. Like, I have the most conversations, the most interesting content. It's where everything's happening. That's yeah. So, so, but do you remember the feeling when it first came out? Yeah, it was was like Arab. It was like Arab Spring. Well, there was like people were trying to make it political, right? No, 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 no. I'm talking about when it really came out, like 2005 or something. When when did Twitter start? Yeah, that was when people didn't understand what it was, or they would. Well, everyone had a different idea. Blogging existed, and then this was microblogging, but Tumblr was kind of microblogging, but this was like mm-hmm. nanoblogging, and you're like, hmm. And I remember, I, yeah. I think one of my first tweets was something like, "Well, I'm throwing some words into the void," and it it, it just felt like that. It was like a page <laughs> that nobody would read, and uh, here, yeah. uh, here, I'm here. This is my status update. And, uh, but I was just thinking, no one, yeah, no one responded a, a status probably. update is like, hey, going to the grocery store, feeling good. Well, oh, yeah, that's that? a good point. Because so, it used to also ask you a question, like, what are you doing? Yeah, right and so something. for me, the status update was like, well, I'm eating oatmeal. And and so just... Uh, <laughs> well, that became a joke. Yeah, you know, like, but the, then the I, I would just about tweet media. everything I ate after every meal and just compose a tweet and be like, okay, well, that's what I ate. So that's my status update. And so that's what but I've been doing. It's the longevity that you've been doing it for that I find most impressive, that you've been doing it for so long, so consistently. Yeah. Because we've all done it like ad hoc from time to time, but you've just, you have your own Twitter account for it. What is it? Our, our food or yeah, something? Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. And I've been, mm-hmm. I've, there's been a few moments where I was like, this doesn't make any sense and I'm using my computer too much and I'm a slave of the network and I should just uh, break away from it. And then I don't do it for a day. I'm like, oh, this is weird. I have to keep going. Mm-hmm. What about when you don't know the ingredients that, of the food? Does it does it have you? Do you reflect sometimes on your I food did, more? I, I describe it like uh, sometimes I'll eat something in Japan and I'll just call it a mystery dish or something like that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because I was wondering. Well, I'll uh, approximate it like a, a chicken tasting substance. Because they have this new technology now where you can scan your food with like a sensor and it'll tell you what's in it. 
I don't know if you've seen that. I'm so I'm so unimpressed often with those things and how much it gets it wrong. It, I'm sure it works for chicken nuggets, but it doesn't work for right, right, right. All the test materials were different fast food <laughs> yeah. items, but it, yeah, because but, they're like designed the to give you like your calorie. Up, uh, that's about yeah. the. Extent. They want to give you your calorie count and whatever. I think it's all this technology that's inspired by Star Trek, like a lot of what <laughs> it, it's it's partly inspired by Star Trek and it's partly inspired by a compartmentalized society where it's like, okay, Mexican food is at Chipotle, burgers mm-hmm. are at uh, Shake Shack, mm. and then it can recognize those things because they're standardized. But if you have a mm-hmm. home-cooked meal, it's like, what's this burrito burger? Mm-hmm. But it would be amazing if it could figure it out. I wonder what it would do for chefs. Because, you know, coming back to the independent artist Well, it would have chef. to be a, sort of like an x-ray of a, of a dish that would chemically count all the calories... Well, I'm, I'm even thinking, like, oh, there's a certain secrecy to... Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the first ever patents um, granted in, you know, civilization were for you're food in ancient... Obsessed, uh, yeah, yeah, well, food in ancient Greece was the first thing, okay. you know, first ever uh, creative act that could be patented. And uh, what was the dish that they patented? I don't... There were, There's no record of these patents. Just talk about it in texts. Yeah. Um, and so... But it was that because food and the chef was held at the highest level of society. So above the artist, above the, you know, musician was the chef. Like that's how highly regarded yeah, must have been some good cooking food back was. Then. Right? And yeah. so you, having a signature dish, you needed needed to protect ima- that, Imagine right? I wrote a haiku once uh, whoever invented cheese is a genius, but imagine you invented cheese and you patented it. Well, I mean, a kind of cheese. I mean, maybe people could no, vary just that the idea cheese, of like, oh, let's let the milk rot a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's a really good point. I don't know what happened in ancient Greece, whether there was a crisis at some point. Uh, well, of course, we know the empire eventually fell, <laughs> but it's like probably on the basis of not enough food innovation. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but I do find it it's an interesting thing to think about that. That's how highly regarded the chef was. That that was you know the whole government, all the law was built around protecting that person. And their economic viability, because we've been talking about, you know, making sure you invest in your local um, restaurant or whatever. But that's, you know, they were really regarded as the like the the artist of their 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 day. And when you travel, do you go out of your way to uh, because you have the luxury of traveling for work? But then do you go out of your way to try local things? Um, I will, uh, yeah, I will always do that. And like, you know, what's the thing you should try here, whether it's a Philly cheesesteak, the best Philly cheesesteak place. And, you know, often that'll be like, not the the best thing. It'll be like something that someone else knows that's yeah. like, but if you you're know, in, in Europe or Asia somewhere. and there's a local dish, it's different than if you're in the U S well, one thing that most people don't get access to when they travel to Europe is, uh, to the locals perspective, but as an artist, and of course you live in Europe, so this is maybe not as relevant to you, but, but maybe it's true for you in, in America. Um, you, someone will take you to the place that they went with their family or something like that. Like, yeah. and it's not a tourist place. In fact, it's, it's, it would be impossible for you to find cause it's some Legion hall yeah, or something. That's a, <laughs> funny, like, that's a funny thing in, in software where, um, that's a very hard thing to figure out this recommendation. Yes, it's the classic. In fact, I was just at IDEO's uh, head offices uh, this week, or in Chicago, not their head office, their Chicago office. In, uh, and they had a little thing for when clients come in from out of town, 
they have like a whole map um, yeah. on one part of their wall where it's like different places you can go in different neighborhoods. Like, and they can take these little cards off. It's like a little design I, I th- project that they did. I think what we're discovering is that when it comes to food, you find the shortcomings of technology. That AI mm-hmm. or distribution or preservation or pesticides or whatever we try to add uh, or Yelp, mm-hmm. you see the shortcoming. When it comes to banking or like the distribution of microchips to factories everybody or gps or all those things we love technology there's no doubt mm-hmm. it it just works and it makes life better i don't want to stand in line to write on a piece of paper that i want to transfer money to some i want to do that from an app and everybody agrees that's better mm-hmm. but when it comes to food i don't think ordering from an app and then running out of there and eating it on a bench somewhere is a good way <laughs> out of a plastic you're also, bowl you're, yeah you're making a good point, though, too, around some of these technologies like Yelp and stuff, because what they try and do is transcode an experience that can only be had by the by an individual yeah. in the moment. Well, yeah, in yeah, situ. exactly. But it's it's not only uh, getting the recommendation; it's also going with that person who knows the waiter and can say, "Hey, can you put mm-hmm. a little bit of this or the secret thing you order or yeah. try that?" And so replacing the the human uh, ingenuity and and nuances with technology is just uh mm-hmm. well no it's funny because there's a little bit of a tail wagging the dog uh as you might know now at least in north america a yelp review can make or break a restaurant and so or an aggregate of, of yelp reviews that are negative and so i've heard from restaurant owners that are like in tears over a bad review because they have they have to find some way to get you to remove that review yeah. right it reminds me of art it's- school when you have review and there's five <laughs> teachers but they either start on a good note or on a bad note, and they might have had, like, maybe they they ate something bad. This goes back to food. Mm-hmm. And then you have these five judgmental pricks in front of you, and one goes, well, I don't know about this. And then everybody starts <laughs> whining, or it's the opposite. But And Yelp is the same. Like, one person will start a conversation that sets the tone for everything that comes after. Well, and often it's, like, actually not the food. It'll be the service. Now, I'd argue that the service is of equal importance to the food in a restaurant, but... Um, you know, the, someone might just want to have the best possible, you know, ramen in New York. And because the service is bad, um, you know, they're discouraged yeah. or they're, they're not able to find that restaurant. Yeah. And, and when, when you live in a place, you have the luxury of trying restaurants and they might not be that good. And then you try another one. But if you visit and you let's say you go to Vietnam and you really want to try mm-hmm. the best or whatever, or you, you want to experience everything. You don't you only have two weeks, so you can't afford to have five misses. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it reminds me like the Imber Seinfeld's soup Nazi. Yeah, <laughs> like it all comes back to soup. Seinfeld. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, but like he, you know, he he was like tyrannical and like you had to pay in a certain way and order in a certain way. Otherwise, no soup for you. Uh, but what's interesting about that is like terrible service, great soup. But in today's Yelp, uh, Foursquare, like era, do you think that people would yeah. go to the soup Nazi? No, I, I know, but it, it's funny we. Um, Really uh, close to us, there's a place, a Japanese curry place, and it's on a uh, intersection which is surrounded with brunch places. And the, mm. the uh, brunch, like American brunch, is a, basically different kinds of eggs and uh, a Bloody Mary, right? That's what brunch mm-hmm. is. Like. That's what most people <laughs> like. So there's a huge line in front of all the brunch places to have a mediocre egg sandwich. I know. And then the the curry place, the there's no menu. one there, it's, especially in the in the around brunch time. It's Japanese curry. Japanese yeah, curry. Yeah, because most, I love Japanese. But curry. most people don't want to eat curry at 11 a.m., so there's no one mm. there. But I think it's a much better dish, and the service is better. 
And then people are literally, there are coffee shops next to the brunch places because people have to wait an hour and a half to two hours. <laughs> and we went to one of the egg places just to try it because we just wanted to see, okay, what will people wait around for for two hours? And we ordered the basic egg sandwich, which we thought would be the signature disc. Uh, it, the place is called Egg Shop. It's just a place for egg sandwiches. And mm. the eggs were runny, and it, they were so runny that we were hardly cooked, so I sent the sandwich back. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is a snot sandwich. And they mm -hmm. remade it, and it was still snotty, and the, the environment was loud. It was so terrible and expensive, and we had to wait an hour mm. and a half to have a table. And so this is this weird Yelp effect where someone will go like, I uh, like eggs, and then all of a sudden everybody's like, you got to try the egg place. And it... But you just made a really good point that's hidden in, in there that, that's missing from our Yelp focus culture. So I grew up in a culture where my mom, yeah, it's like hype she's like the hardest hardest person to go to a restaurant with because she would send almost everything back if it wasn't to the, the right specification. Um, and I like your mom when I, go, when I go out with people, they're afraid. Like I'll say, like, I got to send this back or this is bad service. I've got to let them know. And there'll be like a lot of tension suddenly. And I used to get tense as a child, but over time I learned from my mother that... It's a gift to the kitchen hmm. to send something back because it's, they don't get feedback any other way. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so if you go and write your Yelp review and you didn't, you know, and by the way, positive feedback is as warranted in the kitchen as negative. And so you always want to thank your kitchen staff if it's a really excellent it's, it's meal. It's also too. This, this idea that um, maybe you have a personality that you don't like what everybody else likes. So uh, you probably wouldn't... You'll look in Yelp to see if you're in a new city and see what do they recommend for me to eat. But you wouldn't mm -hmm. look at the Billboard 100 to see what should I listen to today. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, why why would you, if they're like, well, Britney Spears is really great. Then you're like, I don't think so. Yeah. And we also, we choose restaurants based on how many people are lined up outside them or inside them. And yeah. I've always found that curious too. Like, when did that start? Like, it, And it's it, very binary. It's, it's either, it's all or nothing. It'd be one restaurant that's completely empty and the other one people wait two hours. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been part of like an alphabet dining club? That kind of tries to defeat that purpose. That? Which is like, you, well, you go through the phone book and you just go, um, My actually my mother-in-law is part of, and father-in-law are part of one of these. And you just start at A and you go to like, okay, we're going to go to to Adam's uh, diner today. And then tomorrow you go to Why like Bob's Burritos. Yeah, I don't know. Just because to take the choice. <laughs> but would you, would you <laughs> not filter? Or would you say certain restaurants are off the alphabet? Uh, I think it's just to get out of your local neighborhood, your local okay. area, and go try something in another place to force. I, that I still function. think because we're as humans so so adverse to adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still think you know, the, even best, when you're the best way I think is asking people what restaurants do you mm -hmm. like. I still think that yeah. way, because then you have a conversation and you're like, well, the service was kind of shitty, but they have this one dish that I really enjoyed, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why you wouldn't, like, especially when you travel, you know, why you wouldn't take the opportunity just to try new things, to go somewhere new. To yeah, but, to, but to go you know that feeling, it, it, Paris is a good example where if you just walk into any restaurant that catches your eye, it's going to be mm -hmm. a bad deal because they spent all their time making an amazing facade. And, then, right, right, and, right. and, and they can be really mean and shitty food. And if you have the the privilege of having someone who lives in Paris who can recommend yeah. things to you, it's it's so much better and you and i have an unfair advantage because we've like we've eaten good meals in almost every city and so to i mean not almost every city mm -hmm. but enough cities that when we travel we can like pretty much figure out from friends or places we've already been where where we should be eating. yeah and i and i always have a seat yeah like someone is willing to 
give a really great recommendation. It, it is interesting. Not everyone has that. It's similar to art where um, you visit a city and you're like, okay, I would like to see what this culture is about. But you'll probably go to the museum. And the museum mm. is a bit of a high culture McDonald's where it's yeah, a big consistent quality, <laughs> but you'll see a Richard Serra and you'll see... Yeah, I've already seen a Jeff Koons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a, it can be predictable. But then to go to smaller galleries and see artists made by younger people... Um, it's risky because a lot of times it's like, hmm, I don't know. And it's uninteresting yeah. and it's out of the way mm-hmm. and it's hard to find. And uh, so curation or guidance or friendships are, are key. Here's an idea. Like there should be like a dinner and art combination kind of, uh, like you should be able to go to any city and there should be a, like a Soho club. And it's like, it's like they'll pair a great small independent restaurant with a independent art opening. And they're both really high quality, hmm. uh, recommended by Raphael Rosendahl. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I thought and for a while about making a, a website with restaurant recommendations by artists, but uh, yeah. I asked different artists and they didn't want to give away their secret spots. They didn't want them to become too popular. Really? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I'd be into that. I would be into us doing like a good point. Uh, re- and maybe our listeners could even like send in their favorite restaurant in their local area and we could create like a... Artist recommended restaurants. Yeah, and, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like a. It would be fun. But it, I'd love it, that. It, uh, it is a, a funny shortcoming of the social graph where, it, the idea is that you trust the the opinion mm. of your friends. So, the the ultimate uh, um, social graph. You're saying you don't trust our listeners. <laughs> no, I do. I'm saying nobody logs their restaurants, so uh, okay. I, I bookmark things on Yelp. But most people. I don't think they do, but what you want is to, you will travel to a place and let's say you travel to a rural part of Southeast Asia. So you're in Thailand or mm-hmm. you're in Vietnam and a lot of your, maybe five of your friends that you don't talk to often have been there, but you don't really want to call them and ask. But Facebook would know where they've been and how much they've enjoyed it and uh, through AI and listening, it remembers where they were like, oh, this is so good. They didn't even have to log anything. And so that's the dream that you can mm-hmm. learn from your uh, friends' enjoyments without having to ask them. And uh, But it just, mm-hmm. I, I don't see that working. I, yeah. Okay, so it would have to be like some kind of one-to-one thing. So like you'd pair, we would have restaurant You would have to give up privacy and it would have emotional sensors mm-hmm. and it would know like, okay, in this restaurant, the, the taste buds went berserk. This was really good. <laughs> Okay, well, I don't. Maybe it's got to be like some kind of chat roulette for a restaurant or something. <laughs> oh yeah, you know that reminds me of the first iPhone app that had any attention was this app where you would it would randomly select a restaurant for you. What was it called? Do you remember? No, I don't. It was like it was like a slot machine, and it was like I was the first app I installed for my parents on their new iPhone to show them how like <laughs> this is what you could do in the crazy new smartphone world. <laughs> Oh man, I can't remember what it was. I'll put it in the. I'll definitely put it in the show notes. But it was like that. The app was like, um, yeah, you just. It was a. It was a huge deal. Now, it was like everyone had it. But it, it's funny. Where is it really seeing this from our perspective? For a lot of people, like a traveling salesperson, their ideal is that they have a points card, a rewards card, mm-hmm. and there's like these seven chain restaurants that are in their reward system. And they eat the same dish at every place, <laughs> and they know that if they travel anywhere in the world, they'll be the best Western hotel or whatever chain they're part of, and they'll get points for that, and then mm-hmm. they'll go to Chipotle and have the same. I spoke to someone in automation, and he said, 
90% of people, when they go to a restaurant, they order the same thing. So McDonald's was headed towards this thing where there's an app and it knows you're coming near McDonald's so to already prepare the meal you want. And you don't even have to think about paying. It already does that. You walk in and... Don't you dare pass this restaurant without buying something. Yeah, or you just put your thumbprint or the moment you enter the the door, it says, Hi, Jeremy, your Big Mac is ready. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it it strikes me that there's nothing like... We keep talking about things being local and adventurous and you want to try weird things with mold and earthy flavors, but the fact is and it's a bit depressing but the fact is most people just want convenience and uh well it's funny though because like you know let's reduce let's reduce humanity to a few things like music movies and food yeah <laughs> like yeah. That. it's like there's like my spotify can put together a great discover playlist right and like uh, rotten tomatoes can make a great movie recommendation but I feel like in food, there's still nothing like a Pandora, like a music, a food genome for like chefs and restaurants where like I can say like, I like this type of food and it can it can sort of make a suggestion. Yeah. Like Foursquare always tries and it does a terrible job for me where I'll like, I'll arrive in a city. And it's like, looks like you're in um, Seattle. Would you like to try? You, you seem to like cafes. No, uh, I, I, that try, are... I tried Foursquare in my neighborhood, see what it recommends. Mm-hmm. And even that was terrible because Foursquare is more, it's, it's a bit more hipster and more connected to friends than to the general audience. Mm-hmm. So I thought. I mean, I prefer to Yelp though for that reason. Yeah. So I, because like because less people know yeah, about it, it's better. But I th- <laughs> so part of the whole movement is maybe this is also an income inequality thing where that contrast is becoming bigger. But part of it is people on the upper echelon is like I want to find specific things that are local and mm-hmm. that were made with love, and the other side is like man, I just I just love the chicken McNuggets and I want to eat them every day and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah and. It, it, I saw an interview with Steve Jobs, and he said that at some point he thought there was a conspiracy in TV broadcasting to keep people dumb. Like, that from the top down, it was ordered to make mindless content to keep people peaceful and complacent. Mm -hmm. But he said the more depressing realization is that people choose mindless content, and they're not (laughs) force-fed. They just love relaxing with stupid stuff, and they don't want to learn things all the time. All right, I think that's the best point. <laughs> it's the most hopeless good point. It, it is funny to uh, me that, that there's a lot of moments in art history where artists will embrace mass culture and be like, well, reality TV is actually really intellectually stimulating and we should accept it. And uh, uh, Walmart is actually a beautiful place, so we should accept oh, it. Oh, my, ba- my uh, McDonald's is Bauhaus argument? Are you trying yeah. to take that down months later? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so we should appreciate it for what it is and the yeah. beauty. But then... I'm thinking about an artist like Warhol who made a video of himself eating a McDonald's burger and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, embracing that. But I still, uh, there's an interview with Roy Lichtenstein where he talks about, well, he painted the new world. He wanted to be honest about the world he's in. And so he would see gas stations more often than a a creek in a mountain and birds. You know, Mm -hmm. so he's living in an industrialized world and he doesn't, he wants to address that. But he says, mm-hmm. of course, I'd rather have a picnic uh, on a meadow by a creek than at a gas station. So <laughs> right. there's that thing where we're excited about technology in the modern world, but at the same time, the algae bar doesn't taste good, Soylent doesn't taste good, and so you can't lie to your stomach. We're over time, but I want to tell one story, which is uh, rem- you reminded me that we've just 
this is one of those things where you forget about it. Uh, and then after the podcast, you want to tell it. So I, I know we're a little over listener, but I have to tell the Clayton Christensen milkshake story. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> because because otherwise, like, Can I mean, you it's, introduce it's my f- who Clayton Christensen is. Clayton Christensen is a Harvard professor and writer, wrote The Innovator's Dilemma and other books, most recently Competing Against Luck, um, is you know one of the uh, sort of original thinkers around this concept in product design called jobs theory. But he explains jobs theory and this, this way about thinking about your customer through one very funny uh, story about uh, around milkshakes. And uh, he tells a story about... Um, a client that was uh, in the in the business of fast food, and they noticed a spike in milkshakes, and they didn't understand why people were buying these milkshakes. And so, in the morning, uh, in the morning, yes, early in the morning. Uh, and so they went and they observed him and his team went to this you know fast food establishment, and they observed people buying these milkshakes. And as they were coming away from the cash register, they stopped them and they said, "You know, I just have to know." You know, why are you buying a milkshake in the morning? You know, there's what 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 is going on here? And they explained to them that well, because they had a long all these people they they saw a pattern. They all had a long commute. They all had at least a one to two hour commute from their home to work. And they would stop at this fast food restaurant and get a milkshake because they needed they because they needed something to do during that commute. They need they had one hand on the steering wheel. And they needed the other hand to be doing something so they wouldn't get bored. And the milkshake and was so thick that it would take half an hour to drink the whole thing. It's so yeah, cold, so, this milkshake, so frozen. So frozen, so thick that it would take a whole hour. And that, so that was one of the you things would think, that had to Yeah, do. that someone came up and said, breakfast is eggs. And then the egg sandwich came out of that. So the restaurant yeah. probably thought, well, people order egg sandwiches in the morning, so we should have them ready for them. But you can't drive with an egg sandwich, and so other things that yeah, that, that it's you too hot you know, and it's messy, and you you can't you have to look at it, and then and, you have a traffic accident. Yeah, and you eat it quickly. Anyway, the other thing that they needed to do is that they knew that it was early in the morning that they started their commute, and so what, whether they had breakfast at home or not, they knew that by the time they got to work, they'd also be hungry again, and they didn't they don't want to be hungry again at work because they wouldn't have time to eat. And so they needed something that would sit in their stomach that was heavy and thick. <laughs> and so this milkshake would sit in the bottom of their stomach. And, you know, of course, they could have a banana or like they could have a breakfast sandwich. But have you ever tried to drive while peeling a banana? He says, you know, it's like the banana is like is you're fumbling with it. The peels on the ground. It's a mess. Right. And you could you maybe you could have a chocolate bar, but it wouldn't last you the whole length of the trip. And, and so he comes up with this theory, of course, that you're hiring the milkshake uh, and firing all these alternatives, but you're hiring it to pass the time and sit in your stomach so that you don't feel hungry. And th- it's a funny story because it, it does characterize the consumer, of course. Yeah, it, it also American characterizes these, like, these strange decisions to uh, move to a new country, which is way too big, and colonize it. Yeah. And then be- to deal with the vastness of it, you invent the car which should make yeah. life easier, but actually you're stuck in the car four hours a day and then you have to eat this unhealthy stuff not to be in terrible hunger pain at work with, with the fluorescent yeah. lights. And and not to be bored, <laughs> yeah. you know, that you can like hold one hand on the steering wheel. I love this image of one hand on the steering wheel, one hand on a giant yeah. milkshake. <laughs> and there's also this, this really depressing contradiction that uh, people in the U.S. are force-fed all these fears 
through the news. So they're afraid of immediate danger. The terrorists are coming. Uh, someone's going to mug me. Someone's going to take my kids or whatever. But nobody's afraid of fast food because it's a slow death. But it takes away <laughs> 10 years of your life. And the, 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 the chances that you die of the uh, problems of fast food are way higher than you die of a terrorist attack. But well, it's certainly this milkshake is part of the industrial production uh, and of the machine, slow death, right? yeah, the slow death. But and of course, Clayton Christensen's trying to make this point, which is that um, it, which eventually led to a whole category of protein milkshakes, which is just about filling your stomach on a long commute, or like even these cookies and cream Dunkin' Donuts kind of like thick breakfast shakes um, and and even smoothies, which are kind of healthy at times, but not really because that's a lot of fruit to put in your stomach. Um, Anyway, but what he's talking about is like your the job that you have to do is not always obvious, right? Yeah. Like food is not always just about calories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be about something else. It can be about overcoming boredom. It can be about socializing with yeah, friends. Yeah, but again, when be, you engineer it, the food, it's not good for the body. Yeah. So the but I just want to say that, that let's forget about the milkshake and look at like another alternative. With the, you know, that's this casual fast food that's emerging. People are not buying food. Like Shake Shack's not about the food, even though you might think the burgers are really good. It's because people are asking for higher quality ingredients, so they're they're trying to acquire health, and with all the flavor that they're used to in fast food. And potentially a little bit of time to sit down and relax with friends and family. Um, and none of those things have to do with the calorie count or like, um, I don't know, yeah. the, who the chef was or whatever. But. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I keep coming back to how crazy this uh, human invention of efficiency is. And uh, it, a lot of it seems that it one of the biggest killers in human history is hunger. So we we've invented so many ways to counter hunger to the extreme, like... Let's store 200 times the food we need just so we'll never die of hunger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do that. Well, death is like a very strong incentive yeah. or disincentive, rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that what I, the point I'm trying to make is that there's a lot of pleasure in the food experience that we don't document or we don't talk about, um, yeah. which we've been talking about this whole podcast, which is like, we're seeking something more than calories. If it was just Soylent, if it was just about delivery. Yeah, then but it my would be thesis the, the, is that Soylent is, is probably going to give you colon cancer because you don't get any fibers. So, Well, it's funny, the, the conference I mentioned where I had it, which was like a VR conference, ironically, uh, they they had sponsored the conference and there was free Soylent bars for everyone. And then that very weekend, news broke that it was caught. Their bars were causing violent diarrhea, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone at the conference was like, "That's why I feel so uncomfortable." <laughs> like, oh, this man. is like dystopic yeah, VR. Yeah, I moment. think food is too fun. complex to mess with. <laughs> anyway, we should probably get into this week's field recording. Wrap things yeah. up. Yeah. Um, so, please find attached a field recording for the podcast. It's the sound of an amusement arcade in Margate, UK, called the Flamingo. I was thinking about your discussion in the podcast about the flashing lights and arcade machines being programmed to attract people in. They seem to be doing the same thing with sound, these startling, slightly too loud outbursts designed to draw your attention. Also noted the very, note the very English-sounding voices and how arcades across the world must sound different by region. The first few minutes are me playing on a two-pound pushing machine, or 2P, and losing about 80p. Then I have, a, have to wander around for a bit. You can hear the music from the Jurassic Park themed machine towards the end. 
There was only one other person in the arcade, an elderly woman feeding a slot machine. Wow, okay, so that comes to us uh, via Graham. Thank you, Graham. Um, kind of an interesting scene <laughs> with an old woman. And <laughs> arcades a thing of the past. Yeah, it sounds like... Yeah, I mean, he didn't... So now, yeah, maybe that would have been a young girl in the 1980s. <laughs> it's an old woman at a slot machine yeah. in the sounds of Jurassic Park. His name Park. is Graham Dunning. Oh, yeah, Graham Dunning. Well, thanks, Graham, for sending that in. So let's uh, leave this this food podcast on a... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, eat an omelet. With the uh, the vintage sounds of an arcade the machine with old women feeding slot <laughs> machines. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, wait, we need more field recordings. Send them in. <laughs> thanks.
趣味でして